0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news. Coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: As the battle over redistricting drags on, here's today's latest update. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has set a date to hear arguments. That date is next Wednesday, January 19th, beginning at 9 a.m., The arguments could stretch on into the afternoon as the state's high court has set aside an unusually long amount of time for oral arguments.
0: Meanwhile, a fight over how elections are administered in Wisconsin also rages on. Today, the State Elections Commission, which administers voting in Wisconsin, pushed back but did not outright deny a massive request for information submitted by Republican lawmakers. This request, made by State Representative Janelle Branchin, a Republican from Menominee Falls, along with five of her legislative colleagues, seeks election data across two decades, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission pointed to the broadness of the request and its infeasibility. The commission's Democratic chair, Ann Jacobs, described it as a, quote, absolutely insane request from the legislature, unquote. The Elections Commission has been subject to Republican scrutiny for calls it made in the 2020 fall election. Some legislators have even called for the commission to be disbanded. Commission Administrator Megan Wolf, who herself has been the subject of targeted attacks from Republican lawmakers, estimates that the records request could cost well over $100,000 and take hundreds of staff hours to fulfill.
1: As the dust from past elections continues to be swirled, the 2022 fall election is approaching. Wisconsin Secretary of State Doug LaFollette said today he's gearing up for yet another run in 2022. LaFollette has held the office for decades and has been in office continuously since 1983. In many other states, the Secretary of State is in charge of administering elections. That's not so in Wisconsin, where, again, the Wisconsin Elections Commission is in charge of that process. But LaFollette tells the Associated Press that part of his motivation to run is to block Republican attempts to win the position and give it more power. Those concerns may be brought on by what would be LaFollette's Republican challenger, current state representative Amy Loudenbeck of Clinton, who has said she wants to empower the position to serve as a check on the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Meanwhile, Interim UW System President and former Republican Governor Tommy Thompson tells the Wisconsin State Journal that he's not ruling out another run for governor. Thompson has been serving as Interim UW System President since summer 2020. He's wrapping up this stint soon, announcing that his last day will be March 18th. The State Journal reports that Thompson intends to talk over a possible run with his family in April. If Thompson runs, he would face a growing slate of candidates on both sides of the aisle, Rebecca Clayfish, who served as Lieutenant Governor in Scott Walker's administration, is the highest-profile Republican gubernatorial candidate. All those campaign announcements come as, of course, Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson is indeed running for a third term. Johnson announced his candidacy on Sunday, breaking a previous campaign pledge to only serve for two terms.
0: And if you thought we'd be done with political news for today, well, you would be wrong. The Associated Press reports that a judge has denied a request from Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to delay his sitting for a deposition related to an open records case. The lawsuit brought forward by the liberal watchdog group American Oversight comes after it asked for records related to the investigation of the 2020 presidential election ordered by Voss. The speaker has been ordered to sit with attorneys from American Oversight tomorrow.
1: And in today's COVID-19 news, Dane County broke an unfortunate new record today, reaching an all-time high of hospitalizations from the virus. The Capital Times reports that there are currently 197 people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County. This figure broke a record set just yesterday when there were 184 people hospitalized with COVID in the county. Yesterday also marked 1,881 new daily COVID-19 cases in Dane County. Over the past two weeks, over 3% of all Dane County residents have tested positive for the virus. The city of Madison has set up mobile vaccination clinics across the entire county and have administered more than 500 doses of the vaccine in the last week alone. And now on to today's top stories.
0: Last night, the Madison Board of Education approved additional paid leave days for staff and teachers in the Madison Metropolitan School District. But the sick leave is a compromise, and this deal doesn't include as much paid leave as some school board members wanted. WORT producer Nate Hout
2: has the story. In the first year of the pandemic, certain large employers were federally required to provide paid sick leave and expanded family and medical leave for reasons related to COVID-19. That federal requirement ended last fall in September. But it may have prompted other employers to think about expanding their paid leave in a global pandemic. For months, Madison Metro School Board member Nikki Vandermeulen has been advocating for more days of COVID-related sick leave for staff and teachers in Madison schools. Now she's gotten half her wish. Under a compromise policy, the Madison Board of Education has approved an additional five days of sick time and benefits and two extra mental health days for teachers and school staff. VanderMeelen originally wanted a full 10 days of COVID leave for staff.
3: The administration made that decision because we wanted to get it done immediately. And to do more than five days, it would have taken probably HR much longer. I'm not positive the exact reasoning. That was the reasoning. I was told that in order to get it done immediately, this is a temporary fix.
2: Michael Jones is the president of Madison Teachers, Inc., the union that represents Madison's teachers. He says that the new COVID days are a good first step, but only a good first step. It's like a temporary salve on a, a much larger, kind of deeper systemic issue. We got to get to the bottom of it. I know the district is uh, planning on working with us. On on this, or figuring out a way that we can get a more robust, uh, comprehensive plan together that not only um, accounts for days moving forward, but also all the days that have been lost uh, since September, because this this uh, lack of policy has has been impacting our staff for quite some time. So we need to uh, get into get
3: into those sort of details, but I'm confident. We can get a policy that we're all proud of that will also encompass not only this entire school year, but hopefully be a
2: template for when future disruptions happen because COVID isn't going away anytime soon. MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamond says that the five COVID days are just an emergency solution and that the board will meet at a later date to discuss additional COVID sick leave. While the date of that meeting is not currently set in stone, Vandermeelin says she is working to get the proposal before the board as soon as possible. Another issue that arose in the meeting was the two mental health days. Board member Chris Carusi says she is worried that, while the days look good on paper, it may be difficult for teachers to take those mental health days due to staffing shortages. According to data shared in the meeting, coverage from substitute teachers have been down since the beginning of the pandemic, and that coverage has dropped down to only 56.4% of classroom vacancies filled in December. Deidre Jurecki is a teacher at La Follette High School, Madison. She says that, though she doesn't have a specific number about how many teachers are out, there have been a noticeable lack of teachers since the beginning of the school year.
4: I know there's a lot of unfilled sub-positions. We're doing our best to cover classes. You know, additional, like, principals and support staff are also trying to cover if teachers are out. Yeah, I don't, we don't ever really get, like, a full list of the numbers, but I, I know that there are a lot of sub-jobs, and that's been all year. It's now just exacerbated with Omicron. But an
2: additional amendment to ensure teachers could use those additional mental health days within the semester failed. Here's Vander Mullen who supported the amendment brought forth by fellow board member Chris Carusi.
3: It's not our principals aren't wanting our staff to take mental health days. They are and I know they're doing their best but when you have 50 to 70 percent of sub positions unfilled, oftentimes you can't afford to lose that person for a day or two days so yes we would like our employees to be met, to get mental health days but if you can't afford to lose them as in you can't let the teacher go because you'll be short staffed then are we really giving this as a benefit or are we just saying it's there but it's not really usable for the majority of our employees and that's not what we want.
2: The amendment was voted down by the full board. Jarecki says that since coming back from the extended winter break, the school has been much more strict about the COVID policy and that she's happy to see the district taking steps towards safety. She says that after her daughter caught COVID last year, she had to use personal sick days to look after her child.
4: I think I was definitely relieved to see the COVID sick leave. Like I said, I think it's a really good start. And I see that the district is trying to, um, brought me a lot of relief. I'm, I've been teaching for 12 years, but it's only my third year in the district. So I don't have that many sick days accrued. And so that was starting to weigh on me. Um, like what if I run out of sick days? So it was a big relief to see that come through. Um, I also see that they were putting two mental health days on there as well. Um, That was another relief and much needed. The
2: additional sick leave will be available for teachers to use by the end of the week. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wagehout.
0: It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Earlier today, the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW-Madison released the results of a poll it conducted last fall that looked at the public's views on various policy issues across Wisconsin. The poll asked people about their thoughts on the environment, financial security, and how much they trust government institutions. To learn more about the poll, WRT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with J. Michael Collins, a professor of public affairs and human ecology at the La Follette School, faculty director of the Center for Financial Security at UW-Madison, and one of the developers of the poll.
2: This morning, the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW-Madison released a new poll. It measures public's views on policy issues across the state and nation ahead of the 2022 election. With me today is Professor J. Michael Collins, Professor of Public Affairs and Human Ecology at the La Follette School of Public Affairs and the Faculty Director of the Center for Financial Security at UW-Madison. Michael helped to develop the poll for the school. Michael, thank you for talking with me here today. Today.
5: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: So, starting things off, this poll covers a lot of topics, including trust in government institutions. The poll indicates that folks seem to trust more local governments rather than federal governments. Can you tell us what you found there?
5: Yeah, you know the the poll was really designed to try to understand these issues that are important to people in Wisconsin. You know, the it's not sort of a political poll; it's really the policy issues, those kind of issues that are. Um, you know, so to speak, keeping people up at night or the, the issues that really make them motivated to engage in the political process. And so we, you know, broadly looked at, you know, issues that involve the environment or healthcare or you know, whatever, and just asked where people sort of felt they um, had the most importance or the issues they thought were most important to them. And, you know, they then we asked about some of the solutions and where they think those solutions might come from. And that's where this issue of, you know, what level of government Do you have the most trust? And it turns out people like probably not too surprisingly uh, have some issues with the federal government, but they have a little more faith in the ability of local state and local government to try to handle some of these problems.
2: So this poll was conducted back in September and with the 2022 election on the horizon here, are there any findings that we should be aware of as we head into campaign season?
5: Yeah, I I think both yes and no. I mean, these are these are issues that are probably. Going to stick with us for a long time. Probably, you know, people's answers on a lot of these questions, whether it's climate or healthcare, have been consistent over the years. And so, um, the solutions that different policymakers might come up with might be different. Um, I don't think it tells us too much about, you know, who's going to be up or who's going to be down. But it does tell us that, you know, for example, healthcare is still an issue, and it's an issue across the age spectrum, and it's an issue, um, you know, even across the political spectrum. So you know, healthcare remains one of those thorny issues that as much as policymakers talk about it, still is important to try to address. And so I think those issues really are what's going to drive a lot more of the discussion.
2: So, of course, you can't talk about polling in Wisconsin without talking about Charles Franklin and the Marquette Law School poll. Do you see that as maybe a competitor to that poll? Or how is the relationship between the two?
5: Yeah, it's quite different. I mean, the the, the Franklin poll is is really important because it tells us a lot about um, it is more, you know, in the moment or, you know, in the more short term, who, politically, who's, what are voters leaning towards? Or who are voters leaning towards? Which party or which candidate? Um, we don't ask any questions about candidates or parties. What we're trying to get at is issues. Um, and also try to understand some of those things that people might agree on. You know, what are the solutions that people might have some, um, commonalities around? So, um, this is less timely. It's, it's more trying to understand Um, the sort of general trends or the uh, perceptions that people have out there, and also where their trust lies in terms of solutions.
2: So digging back into the poll a little bit, you asked a number of questions about economic security and finances. What did you find about how specific demographics across the state feel about their financial security?
5: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially with the COVID crisis, we really expected there to be um, quite a bit of negative financial fallout from the pandemic. And in no way am I suggesting a pandemic isn't good for anyone. Um, but, you know, certainly many of us who follow people's finances thought that we would see, you know, skyrocketing delinquencies on loans or more trouble with mortgages or people depleting all their savings. And, and we really haven't. Um, you know, the questions we asked in the survey were really about how people are making ends meet. Um, we asked a little bit about, you know, making um, sure they have enough for us $400 emergency, um, and then also about their longer-run retirement security. Um, and those shorter-term questions about $400 for an emergency or um, having enough money to pay your bills, most people feel pretty good about The majority um, do. Now, younger people, so people in their 20s and 30s, and people who have less than $40,000 in income obviously have a harder time making ends meet and have a hard time with those emergency expenses. Um, But across the board, it's certainly better than I've seen in some of the national data. And, you know, it suggests that we don't have this immediate financial problem that a lot of families are facing in terms of making ends meet.
2: So you said that you were a little bit surprised with some of the data surrounding financial security here in Wisconsin. Was there anything else that you found in the poll that sort of surprised you?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think as much as I am, uh, you know, pleased, actually, that my, my pessimism about people's short term impacts of the pandemic. Um, We did see a lot about people's negative perceptions of their ability to manage retirement. Um, And I was surprised because it includes people even in their 50s. (laughs) So people who are pretty close to retirement are feeling pretty worried about their ability to have a, um, you know, a secure retirement. Um, You know, we're a state where A lot of people are in households where, you know, both partners are working, they're contributing towards their savings, um, but they're still struggling to be able to put, uh, you know, enough away to be able to retire. Um, And, you know, it's troubling. We I was part of a governor's task force last year. We looked at this issue and, you know, there is an issue of seniors in retirement and seniors in security is that we might have to have, you know, older people working longer or older, older people entering into poverty because they don't have enough money in retirement. So that, I think I do think as somebody studies retirement, especially, it, it is worrisome that uh, a lot of people are really feeling like a secure retirement is a little bit out of reach.
2: So taking a little bit of a step back, you sort of mentioned national numbers there with the economic security a little bit earlier. How does sort of on a whole with this poll, how do the numbers compare to sort of national averages? Does Wisconsin's values on certain policy issues sort of mirror those seen at a national level?
5: By by and large, I would say the um, results that we saw are are pretty similar to what we'd see. Um, And we we didn't ask the exact same questions. So, you know, it's not an apples to apples comparison. But, you know, when you do national surveys of the issues that people care about, you do see things like health care coming up frequently. You see worries about the debt and the deficit at the federal level coming up frequently. Um, and those are all consistent with what we found as well. Um, you know, we did find uh, maybe a, a um, you know, a skew towards some, some concerns about uh, the ability of federal government to take care of problems and sort of, you know, maybe people in Wisconsin have a little bit more confidence in their state and local government. Um, I think that's a general pattern across different parts of the country. But um there's less distrust perhaps of our state and local officials than other places. So that's that's a benefit I think for us all. Um but in general I think we're concerned about the same kinds of issues that people in other states are as well.
2: Well, do you have just anything final that you'd like to share with us here?
5: You know, I, I think the um the poll certainly raises a lot of issues that are um controversial. So, you know, healthcare raises different political uh positions or climate change raises different political questions or, you know, different points of view where people might have to debate, but I, I'm actually encouraged because we see a number of issues where people do have some, some commonalities, you know, um, we have some places where we can start to build towards solutions where there's common ground around, you know, some actions that we can take, maybe it's not climate change, but we care about the environment and we want to preserve what we have, or we want to see healthcare be better and more accessible. And so I think those commonalities are, are some reasons to be possible, and you know, a, be, to be uh, optimistic. And I think it also shows where uh, the role of the law school and the role of our students in really trying to help find those policy solutions is is very promising.
2: I've been speaking with Professor J. Michael Collins, Professor of Public Affairs and Human Ecology at the La Follette School of Public Affairs and the Faculty Director for Financial Security at UW-Madison, and the one who helped develop the new poll for the La Follette School of Public Affairs. Michael, thank you so much again for taking some time to talk with me today.
5: I appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to
1: Handcrafted Local News here on WORT.
0: Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call examines how student government works at the UW.
1: Wildlife Weekly explains how local critters stay warm in winter.
0: And Radio Astronomy shares how the death of a star can shed more light on the entire universe.
1: But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. is now 6 and you're listening to the local news on wort i'm sarah hopeful here with christian Knutsen. thanks for joining us every tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the daily cardinal one of uw madison student newspapers to learn the latest news from campus this week while uw madison is on its winter break host hope Carnop continues to discuss how student government works at, w- at uw with associated students of madison chair adrian Lamprin
6: what I hoped from that first meeting like turned out to be true, that it's a really, it was a really good organization for me to grow and learn in um, and make change.
7: Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. This is episode two in our mini series on the Associated Students of Madison, the student government of UW-Madison. Today, I'm joined by Adrian Lampron, the chair of ASM. Thanks so much for joining us.
6: Of course, I'm excited.
7: Can you start out by introducing yourself and tell us what you're you're in at UW-Madison and what you study?
6: Yeah, so I'm Adrian Lampron. I use they, them pronouns. I am the chair of ASM and I'm at UW studying um, political science and history and I have a LGBT study certificate too.
7: How long have you been involved in ASM, and why did you decide to get involved in student government?
6: I've basically been involved since my first week on campus, or maybe my second week, um, so like three and something years now. I was involved in like student advocacy in high school quite a bit, and so when I came to campus, I was like looking for different ways to be involved. Um, did a little bit of searching in a bunch of organizations like most people do, like go to the org fair and then find 10 clubs you want to try and then winnow it down or whittle it down a little bit. Um, and one of the events I went to was the ASM kickoff that fall. So it's probably like first or second week of school. And I met a bunch of really cool people there who just seemed passionate about doing student advocacy in particular on equity work, which is what I wanted to work on. Um, and I met some people there who ended up being mentors for me through the organization. So it was really cool. Um, that like what I hoped from that first meeting like turned out to be true that it's a really it was a really good organization for me to grow and learn in um, and make change.
7: Can you describe your role as the chair of ASM?
6: Yeah, so I do a little bit of everything in the organization but overall try to connect people with the right person who can help them either within the organization or outside of ASM. So I'm lucky to have a lot of connections with students and other advocacy organizations so I try to, help like folks wherever they are in the organization, like work with the right people in the administration or in student advocacy organizations to like make change. And I also spend a lot of time doing like administrative stuff, like figuring out payroll or how we like need to recruit new employees and people end up having to leave. So things like that happen. But overall in ASM, like when I say I do a little bit of everything, I mean, like I help out a little bit with the allocative and like budgeting side and a little bit with the Grassroots organizing and advocacy side. So, even though I came from like the organizing side, I still appreciate the budget side too, because they fund all the student organizations and awesome stuff like that.
7: Are there any accomplishments um, over this past fall semester that you've been most proud of ASM for working on?
6: There are a few. I think the thing that I'm most proud of personally is our support for the co responder model that UHS um, mental health services and UWPD are now operating. We're partially funding that which I'm really proud of because it's kind of a follow through on a, and a comm- commitment we made last year to support more alternative emergency response. And then outside of that, we've had a lot of really cool organizing this year around sustainability. And I think our sustainability committee and the chair, Ashley, are, they're doing a really good job of like connecting different sustainability organizations on campus and building uh, organizing power and community around fossil fuel divestment and other issues. So really part of them. And I'm excited about also our ability to like bring new folks in this year through our intern program and other things. I mean, because of COVID, we had kind of like a pause in our intern program, which is one of my favorite parts of ASM too. And we have a lot of really like very passionate interns this year who are going to be doing awesome things. So I guess those are the main things. And um, I think one other thing is we've, because there, it was much more difficult to get information quickly during COVID because people were, like less directly connected and oh, I should say, like during like the height of COVID last year, people were less like directly connected to the university systems that we need to get information. And also people in ASM were less motivated to work because of everything that was going on that's making our lives really difficult to live. <laughs> so um, this year, it's been really refreshing to like, learn a lot about different programs that have kind of been like left behind by the university that we really need to be pushing harder on, like R Wisconsin program, which used to be an all in-person program it was like not actually mandatory but everyone kind of acted like it was mandatory and then they did make it mandatory they being like the chancellor in the summer of 2020 but then it went online and now it's kind of like it's not really being like supported enough to be an effective program in my opinion so our equity and inclusion chair Anjali is actually working really hard to like get details about how that program is happening and push to change it and support the person who's running it right now because they're not being supported enough. So I'm hopeful that that program will be like effective again based on the work we're doing this year. And there's other things like that too, where we just had like no idea what was going on for a long time and now we're getting a lot more information. So it's good.
7: Obviously the spring semester is very hard to predict, especially with COVID and everything going on. Um, but are there any issues that you think ASM will likely take a look at in the next couple of months ahead?
6: Yeah. So first thing is we have to finish up our internal budget and also the budgets of organizations that we fund or partially fund. So ASM funds like university health services and recreation wellbeing and a bunch of student organizations. So all those budget processes are happening right now. And there's a big conversation happening around student wage on campus, particularly because of all the underemployment that's happening. So a lot of folks on the allocative and budget side are really busy with that right now, trying to figure out how we can get students livable wages and good jobs that will like be helpful for them in in their student careers and beyond. So working on all that, part of that is the Student Workers Rights Committee, which is going to be kicking off in the spring and we'll be like focusing on student working conditions and wages and all that, which I'm very excited for. It's one of our shared guild committees. And then I think beyond that, we'll probably keep working on COVID safety stuff because it's kind of... A lot of things are up in the air on the COVID safety situation, and ASM was a really strong voice for COVID safety last year, so we'll probably keep working on that, and I know we'll keep working on fossil fuel divestment because that's not an issue that's probably going to be solved easily, and we're probably going to have a town hall around divestment in the, in the spring, which will be interesting to get voices of, like, probably professors and students and people at the WFAA, the Wisconsin Foundation and Alumni Association, to come and talk about the issue, so I'm kind of excited for that. We also really need to keep working on diversity and inclusion training for faculty and staff on this campus. Basically, it's very difficult to get faculty to be required to do anything. And like right now, there is basically no required inclusion training at all for faculty at UW, which I think is kind of very weird, in my opinion. (laughs) So there are a lot of students who've been like working on this for a long time, but I think that this year we're, like I was mentioning earlier, gaining more information and insight into the actual like places where things have been tried in the past or different systems at the university that might be able to implement like inclusion inclusion trainings and stuff. So I am hopeful that we'll be able to get some sort of like inclusive classroom education promoted at this university in the future.
7: Is there anything that you've learned over the past year or so because of ASM?
6: Yes. I think the biggest thing I've learned from ASM and from my time as like a student advocate in and out of ASM is the importance of relationships. It is so important to have good ongoing relationships with other leaders in your field, like probably whatever field you're in, it's the same kind of situation. But for me in student advocacy, like there are people who I randomly got to know at an event like two years ago who are now running student organizations who I can ask for their opinion on some issue I'm working on and get a way better result like just by knowing kind of seemingly random people but if you keep up relationships like either as friends or just like keeping in touch with people even in like the weirdest ways like instagram and stuff you can still kind of like at least it's always good to just have like somebody that you can build trust with in a lot of places on campus and there are times when like i am so thankful for that for those relationships I have now because when I was a younger student leader, like I did not have as many relationships and I always felt very insecure when I was making like important decisions because I didn't know that I had like either the backing of other students or I didn't know if I was making decisions that were like right for a lot of students, especially as a white student leader working in equity spaces. It was always really difficult for me to like know if I was doing the right thing on issues of like racial equity or religion or anything like that. And I still like question myself and try really hard to like check in with other people but um it's much easier now that i like have people that i have like good relationships with other student leaders who i can turn to if i if i if i don't feel like sure of myself on an issue so it's like really important in like an equity space for me to recognize like i'm probably not going to know the best way to solve every problem and also just in general like as a student leader It's so good to have relationships with people because you just if something is going wrong, like I said before, it's always good to be with people that also care about the same things you care about and make it through together.
7: Is there anything else you think listeners should know about ASM?
6: Yeah, I say this at the end of most of my interviews, but always feel free to reach out to us if you are dealing with an issue with like the administration or staff or faculty at this university that you, and you don't know where to go to solve the issue. So you can reach out to the Dean of Students office and they have like case manager people there who can help, but something that ASM can do that most other places can't do is like access a ton of dis, like very dispersed information and try to get that relayed to you in a way that can help you, or we can find the right person for you to go and bug, or we can bug them for you. So just let us know how we can help if you have any issues with the administration and things like that.
7: Great. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Of course, thanks for having me.
7: That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW Madison.
0: As the winter winds blow, one must ask, how do animals stay warm through the season? On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains how different animals adapt to Wisconsin winters.
8: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, And today we'll be talking about the cold winter temperatures right now affecting wildlife. Now, I know I've talked about this in previous segments over time, but we didn't really talk much about the strategies that certain animals use right now. And I was thinking about it with our own animals in our backyard here in Madison when last night I recorded a rabbit who was hopping along in the snow at like one in the morning. One of our cameras just kind of happened to notice it and record it. And I thought it was so neat just watching how it was always alert, but it seemed totally fine, totally healthy and utilizing the environment in a way that is normal for a rabbit. But I was thinking to myself, man, is it cold out there? That poor thing. But didn't seem to phase it. And I was thinking about the flying squirrels in my yard who come down to eat from the feeder at night. And again, they're how are they surviving this? Like, how are the temperatures affecting them? Well, did you know that the temperatures themselves actually affect different species differently. And it really does matter uh, whether they're endothermic or exothermic. So whether they get their temperatures from their surroundings or whether they're warm-blooded like mammals, those are endothermic. And so maintaining that internal body temperature in a really cold condition, there's different thresholds that are various and really highly depend on an animal's physiology. So for example, I know we've talked about frogs and how they're cold-blooded. So that's the ectothermic. And they will actually sense the the temperature drop at a lower temperature compared to a mammal. So it's something that they are definitely known to be able to survive through because they have to hibernate and burrow under the ground and actually will basically freeze through the winter to be able to awaken the next spring when temperatures warm up. Now, that's different than something like uh, 13-line ground squirrels. They are hibernating mammals, and they don't sense the cold temperatures until it's at a really low temperature compared to those that don't hibernate. So things like squirrels or rabbits that are still out and about in the winter, you know, they're waiting it out if they're in hibernation. You know, maybe a chipmunk is, you know, still coming out to feed every once in a while and then go back inside. And so they really have to feed to keep their metabolism busy and have fat storage and fur, really good fur condition especially, to be able to survive through those temperatures. And so others might go through a torpor period. Torpor, if you haven't heard of it before, is a a state of activity that is in, in decline compared to when they're most active. So it's kind of like they're sleeping, but they're not really because they can alternate between, you know, regulating their body temperature and then allowing the environment to have an impact on it. They call it something called heterotherms, which is really interesting. Um, so during harsh conditions, and this is coming from some uh, really great articles here that, you know, Planet Earth has put out, but Wayne State University, there's a, a wonderful article about how they control their their body temperatures in general. So, you know, if it's a species that, you know, harsh conditions, so this is below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, if that not compatible with your your body function which you know below freezing yep that's pretty pretty cold uh you're gonna have a lower metabolic rate so you're taking in like the same amount of calories you'd normally burn is not at your most active versus when you're in torpor so meaning that you metabolize slower and your energy and food demand is lower and so hibernation is kind of similar to torpor except you're pretty much sleeping all winter long and then torpor is more of just like an energy conservation we think about you know bats going into a torpor kind of or hummingbirds in torpor during cold periods before migration so that's it's just really neat it's usually those for a- animals especially birds who have a higher than average body temperature most of them would go through a torpor period compared to other species now what are these animals doing right now out in the wild well rabbits are still out and about they're not hibernating they might not have the the leafy greens available you know they're not eating their dandelions and their clover but Instead, they're eating things that you know have bark, twigs, anything with buds that have that extra fiber that they're going to need. And then that thick fur coat is so important. I think I mentioned that already as being a component of this. But you know they're going to still be able to hide under brush areas, shelter from the conditions. But you know the fur and the thick coat is going to keep them an underlayer and then an overlayer to stay warm. For deer, they definitely have a thick coat. I think you've probably seen them and they get their their winter shag. And they are also eating on woody parts of plants. So. they'll definitely strip trees for that extra food and they do look dramatically different in the summer versus the winter period so they're they're a little thicker a little floofier. Chickadees are an incredible species that can live in like sub-zero temperatures and they're so tiny but they fluff up their feathers and that way they've got that insulating barrier between the feathers which actually changes so that it's like an insulation like a coat of air underneath their feathers that keeps their inner body warm and then they also rest and then sometimes a lot of birds especially will be more gregarious and they'll they'll be more communal. They'll they'll stay in larger groups and then uh, shelter together. So like they might steal a woodpecker hole to just like clump, and a clump of chickadees would be pretty darn adorable. I wish I could see one. And then uh, possums, you know, they've got the hardest time. I would say here for our mammals that are in the winter, those guys get a lot of frostbite problems. We've already had a few come through the center already. Um, you know, with evidence of some cold paws, toes, and digits, and tails, and ears, and so they they have a harder time. You know, having less fur. Covering on certain areas of the body. Um, And so that's why they're maybe more prevalent down here in the southern area like Madison. But they don't do well in like the cold spells where we've got the wind is just, you know, has been kind of crazy this week. Wind chill temperatures being down, it can really do damage to that skin. So just knowing that, yes, animals do still have trouble in the wild. And I feel for them because we're in our nice toasty houses. But those animals are out there trying to survive the conditions just to make it to the next day and uh, they can get, you know, frostbite and they can get hypothermia and and we have to worry about, you know, where are they going to find their next food source? So I know a lot of folks put out food in the winter and brush piles and Christmas trees so that they can hide in it. Garter snakes, definitely a common one that people are finding in the winter in their basements because they're hanging out in a nice place that's not exactly outside. That's actually one that's more cold tolerant than most of our other native snakes in Wisconsin. So they actually are seen outside even through the winter period, December and January, if we have a nice warm day. So yeah, they will they will pop out, but then they go back to their, their hole or their burrow or basement if that's where they're living. So regardless of the species, just know that everybody's got a different strategy and how they deal with the cold. Wisconsin is a tough state to live in and to live outdoors all the time. You got to have those different strategies, whether it's for food strategy for a metabolism lowering or hibernation, whatever it is, there's still risks involved, right? So be on the lookout for those animals that might be frozen or cold or you know stuck in ice or ones that maybe look like they've been injured or they're, they're a little slow because of the temperatures and not doing well. We're here to help in those situations. So, give us a call if you need to at 608 287 3235. And uh, we're here to help sick, injured, and orphaned wildlife here in southern Wisconsin. So, uh, just remember that Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center is available to help with all native species for the most part here in our state, except for those we aren't licensed for. But we are happy to troubleshoot any questions you might have about those animals in your backyard. So, again, give us a call if you have questions. Otherwise, thank you for joining us. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. I got
1: It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The astronomy community is dressed in black this week as members witness the death of a star in distant space. On this week's Radio Astronomy, contributor Roark Habegger explains why this stellar demise is a good thing and what can be learned from witnessing it.
9: Welcome to Radio Astronomy, I'm Roark Haubaker, and today I'll introduce you to our current model of how stars die. We'll need that to learn about new observations that finally observed the precursor emission of a Type II supernova, named SN2020TLF. Astronomers got to watch a star explode in real time. Stars come in all sizes. We often classify them by their mass, normalizing by our own sun's mass. Our sun is one solar mass, specifically it's 2 times 10 to the 33rd grams. Other stars burning hydrogen in their cores have masses as small as 7% of a solar mass and as large as 300 solar masses. That's a pretty big range. And here's a weird fact, the heavier stars live for a very short time compared to the small stars, even though they have way more fuel to burn through. They just do it really fast. Regardless of size, these stars will eventually run out of hydrogen fuel for nuclear fusion. Depending on other factors, like what other elements the star is made of, a star will start burning other elements, like helium. Eventually, though, the forces involved in holding a star together have a final battle. While gravity is pulling the stellar material toward its center, trying to collapse the material to a singular point, the stellar material generates a pressure that counters that gravity. This hydrostatic equilibrium, where gravity and pressure balance one another, forms the basis for most stellar models. Eventually though, either the gravitational force will become too strong, or the pressure will be too strong. Either way, hydrostatic equilibrium will fail. When gravitational force becomes too strong, it can cause a cascade of dynamical activity that we often call stellar death. The star contracts, and unless pressure increases, the star will collapse to a compact object and or explode in a spectacular burst of energy known as a supernova. Compact objects are white dwarf stars, neutron stars, and black holes. When the pressure overpowers gravity, the star will throw off material into the surrounding space. While our own sun has a stellar wind which is relatively constant and small, pressure overpowering gravity at a point inside the star will drive an intense loss of mass as an entire shell around the star gets launched off. This circumstellar material then surrounds a smaller, less massive star where the pressure has decreased to match gravity again. Of course, this new star with less material is likely to lose hydrostatic equilibrium again Possibly collapsing if the pressure decreases too much. So here's the big takeaway breakdown of hydrostatic equilibrium generally means a star is nearing the end of its life. The most common way we observe stellar death is when a star releases a supernova as it dies. These bright events light up the sky, and astronomers slew their telescopes to look at them. They are interesting because a supernova usually appears in a spot in the sky which was previously very dim, where the dead star was. It's as if there were a new star. Nova is from the latin novus meaning new. Now we know a burst of bright light means the complete opposite, that a star is dying, not that it's new. However, a supernova does not tell us about how the star died, just that it is no longer a star or maybe it's become a neutron star or a black hole. So how are we going to learn more about the process of stellar breakdown and stellar death? Well, an international team of astronomers got lucky and observed precursor emission from a supernova. 130 days before a star went supernova, they noticed a spot get slightly brighter in a galaxy 36 megaparsecs away from us. They continued to observe it and then bam, it went supernova and became even brighter than its own host galaxy. After some modeling, they determined the initial brightness was due to the ejection of a shell of material from the star. This modeling shows this circumstellar material also influenced the light from the supernova, since the light had to pass through that material before reaching us. With just this one model, we can identify specific aspects of the light from the supernova, which resulted from this circumstellar material. And we can use it to analyze other supernova explosions for which we didn't catch the precursor emission. Just how common are these mass ejections prior to gravitational collapse? Hopefully we'll figure it out soon. Also, if we get any more observations of precursor supernova emission, we'll get to learn a lot more about the evolution and death of stars. The future is looking pretty bright thanks to Supernova 2020 TLF. I hope you have a stellar week.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6.
1: Special thanks to feature contributors, Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at The Daily Cardinal.
0: Dave Lawrenson engineered the show.
1: Nate Buggyhout produced this newscast.
0: And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news within Enrique Patio. Good night.